0: Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 66, The Athenian Agora. Today's episode is brought to you by our new Patreon supporter, Stratos Argrio, as well as PayPal donor, Alex Mitsialis. If you too would like to support the History of Ancient Greece, you can become a monthly Patreon supporter at www.patreon.com/backslash the History of Ancient Greece podcast, or a one-time donor at www.paypal.me slash ryanstitt. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Like any other Greek polis, the Athenian state was a combination of an urban center, or astu, and countryside, or kora. The city of Athens initially possessed few public buildings, but around the beginning of the 6th century BC, the city began to expand rapidly, Albeit in a haphazard fashion and without reference to any master plan or guiding architectural principle. By the 5th century BC, the population had grown to about 180,000. Most of the population, though, still resided outside the city of Athens in the countryside. It is difficult to gauge the extent to which those living in the countryside were incorporated into the life of the city, though all Athenian citizens, at the very least, would have needed to travel to Athens once or twice a year for official business. Few are likely to have done so on a regular basis, though, particularly those residing in the outermost deems, such as Marathon and Akarni, some 25 to 30 miles from Athens. It is therefore highly likely that there was a considerable gap in the lifestyle, as well as the political engagement, of city dwellers and country dwellers. After the Persian Wars, the limits of the urban geographical growth of Athens were defined by a 675-feet circuit wall, built on top of a three-foot stone foundation with mud brick in its upper courses that rose another 25 feet. It was built hastily on the recommendation of Themistocles and to the irritation of Sparta, if you recall from episode 40. This wall was pierced by at least 17 main gates, and through these gates, roads passed connecting the city with the outlying districts of Attica such as Acarnae to the north, Eleusis to the west, and Piraeus to the south. The most famous of these gates was the Dipalon, or Double Gate, on the western side of the city. It was so named because it consisted of an entrance at the end of a long corridor that was designed to entrap the invader. Outside the Dipalon lay the Karamikos, or Potter's Quarter, where some of the most impressive grave monuments have been discovered. Reconstructed according to its classical plan, the Kerameikos today is a tranquil oasis of peace amidst the bustle in the center of modern Athens. The road from the Dipylon Gate joined the Panathenaic Way, which was one of the few paved roads in Athens. It took its name because it was the route taken by the Panathenaic Festival, held annually in honor of Athena. As it wound its way up to the Acropolis, the Panathenaic Way passed through the Agora, a flat, open space, roughly rectangular in shape, and lined on all four sides with administrative buildings. Pausanias defines a polis as a place having government offices, a gymnasium, a theater, a foundation, and an agora. And the agora was the most important of these. It was according to King Cyrus of Persia in Herodotus's histories, quote, The special place marked out where the Greeks meet to cheat each other, end quote. Of course, Cyrus meant that as an insult to the institution that held such a centrality in what it meant to be an ancient Greek. The agora can be translated as marketplace, but it has no equivalent in the modern world, as it occupied a central position in the livelihood of an ancient Greek city. Although it principally was a center for secular human activity, the gods were never excluded from human activities, and so they too had their place for worship. The agora served not only as a marketplace in the economic sense of exchanging goods and money, but as a meeting place for social, political and judicial activities for Athenian men. Daily life for women was ideally indoors and for men outdoors. Men who stayed indoors were suspected of being effeminate and antisocial, and women who ventured outdoors often were likely to have their chastity questioned, though there is a few notable exceptions, such as the fetching of water each morning from the fountain houses in the agora. In his laws, Plato noted that the greatest good in the polis is that the citizens be known to each other, as the men, certainly not the women, would be if they saw one another every day in the agora. Aristotle distinguished between human beings from other living creatures by their use of speech, though again, women were placed in a different category and are characterized as ideally silent. This was because speaking was essential for the activities that took place in the agora. The Athenian agora is the best-known example of an ancient Greek agora, located at the foot of the Acropolis, on the northwest side, and by the placa, where the people lived. The agora was also bundled on the south by the hill of the Areopagus, and on the west by the hill known as the Agoras Colonis, also called the Market Hill. As its name implies, the agora began as an open space where farmers and artisans showed their wares, but it evolved over time. During the Archaic period, the earliest administrative and religious buildings were erected there, and many more were added during the Classical period. The Greeks were so angered by the Persians' destruction of their sanctuaries, that after the Battle of Plataea, they supposedly took an oath not to rebuild them until after they vanquished the Persian threat, the so-called Oath of Plataea, which we discussed in episode 39. And so the Agora became the focus of the Athenian program from around 480 to 450 BC, the result was that the area became cluttered with public buildings, such as law courts, altars, shrines, statues, inscriptions, fountains, drains, and trophies of war. Roofed multi-purpose colonnades, called stoas, flanked the agora. Sandwiched between the permanent structures and within the stoas as well were temporary stalls that served as shops, banker's tables, booksellers, wholesale merchants, schools, and people buying and selling the necessities of life. Its unique combination, or more accurately, jumble, of functions is captured in a fragment from a lost play by the 4th century BC comic poet Eubolus, and preserved by Athenaeus, who lists the following assortment of items and persons on hand there. Figs, issuers of summons to attend the law courts, grapes, turnips, Pears, apples, witnesses, roses, meddlers, haggis, honeycombs, chickpeas, lawsuits, bee stings, curds, myrtle berries, ballot boxes, bluebells, lamb, water clock, laws, and indictments. The agora was also a place to pass the time of day, as suggested by the verb agorazine, which means to loaf about. Groups of Athenians, as well as foreigners, all had their favorite meeting places. As the speaker in the Law Court speech written by Lysias states, quote, "Each of you is in the habit of frequenting some place, a perfumer's shop, a barber shop, a cobbler's and so forth." End quote. The Decalians, for example, gathered at the barber shop beside the herms, which were stone pillars with the head of the god Hermes atop them. Whereas the Plataeans could be found at the cheese market on the last day of the month. There was some sort of rough grouping of trades in certain locations, as fishmongers, barbers, and bankers all worked on the north side, olive oil was sold on the east side, and freemen wanting jobs could be found for hire on the west side, near the temple of Hephaestus. One character in a comedic play by Aristophanes says, quote, I went around from garlic sellers to onion boys, from spice merchants to haberdashery, and to where books are for sale. End quote. This last part he mentions was a place called the Orchestra, presumably where plays had been performed before the Theater of Dionysus on the south slope of the Acropolis was built. So the Agora must have been hot, dusty, and noisy. Despite its importance, though, the Agora possessed only very rudimentary civic amenities. Stormwater and sewage were disposed of by means of a stone channel that archaeologists have rather grandiosely named the Great Drain. Regardless of the name, though, it was never remotely comparable in scale to the Cloaca Maxima, or Great Drain, that ran through Rome, for example, and there must have been many occasions when it overflowed. Now that we've given you a brief description of what took place in the Agora, let's go on a tour. Imagine, if you will, that you have just entered the Agora via the Panathenaic Way. To the right is the Agora's main square, with temples, government buildings, theaters with columns, and red-tiled roofs. The streets are lined with market stalls that would have sold things like produce and pottery. Worshippers gave offerings to the gods of the various temples, such as Ares, Aphrodite, Apollo, and Zeus, as well as the altar of the twelve gods. It was erected by the Pisistratids in 522-521 BC, and it became an important place of supplication and refuge, and also was the central point from which distances were measured in Attica, such as from Athens to Marathon. The exact identities of the 12 gods to whom the altar was dedicated is uncertain, but they were most likely the same as the 12 Olympian gods represented on the east frieze of the Parthenon, those being Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Demeter, Apollo, Artemis, Hephaestus, Athena, Ares, Aphrodite, Hermes, and Dionysus, though there are good reasons to believe that Hestia may have been one of the 12 also. The agora had a number of stoas, which is a distinctly Greek architectural structure. They were covered walkways or porticos. The simplest ones had a single colonnade supporting a roof, used to provide shelter from sun and rain. The more elaborate ones had two stories and housed shops, where merchants could sell their goods, artists could display their artwork, and religious gatherings could take place. For the Greeks, Stoas were a place of social interaction. They were places where officials discharged their duties, where philosophical and legal dialogue took place, where personal business and the business of the polis was enacted, and where citizens gathered for general conversations and meetings. In this way, Stoas functioned as an apparatus of democracy. Stoas usually surrounded the agoras of large cities and were used as a framing device, and thus they defined and activated the political space. At Athens in particular, along the Panathenaic Way, a visitor to the Agora from the Diplon Gate, or the northwest corner, would immediately come across a series of Stoas. Their location provided splendid views along the Panathenaic Way towards the Acropolis. On the right would have been the Stoa Basileus, or the Royal Stoa. It was originally constructed in the 6th century BC, but was substantially altered in the 5th century BC. The royal stoa was the headquarters of the Basileus Archon and of the Areopagus Council, who were in charge of religious affairs and crimes. A statue of Themis, representing justice, stood in front of the building. Copies of some of the city laws were also kept in the royal stoa. The front of the building was where Socrates met Euthyphro and had the conversation which Plato recreated in his dialogue with the same name. It was also where Socrates was formally charged with impiety by Miletus. Scholars also believe that the voting for ostracism may have taken place in front of the royal stoa. Further to the right of the royal stoa would have been the stoa of Zeus Eleutherios, or Zeus as provider of freedom. It was built between 425 and 410 BC, and was very unusual since it was different from all other buildings to Zeus Eleutherius, in that it was a stoa rather than a temple. It was made of the Doric order, and had two wings projecting forward. There was a great statue of Zeus inside. Its facade was partly made of marble, another unusual feature for the agora, and the interior was decorated with paintings. Its precise function is unclear, though. Plato, for example, says that Socrates often met his friends there. And so, although it obviously had a religious function, scholars believe that the building probably served other civic purposes due to its central location. They also think that the structure may have been built by Menesicles, the architect who built the Propylaea. In the late 1st century BC, a two-room annex was added to the front of the building, possibly to hold the cult of the Roman imperial family. To the left of the Panathenaic Way would have been the Stoa of Hermes, so called because of the great number of Hermi that were set up there. Further to the left of the Stoa of Hermes, and on the northern side of the Agora, was one of the most famous Stoas of them all. The Stoa Poet or Painted Stoa. Excavations carried out by the American School of Classical Studies at Athens over the past two decades have revealed much of the foundations and some lower elements of this stoa. The Doric Order was used for the exterior, while the internal colonnade was Ionic, one of the earliest appearances of order mixing in Athens. Most of the building was limestone, though the Ionic capitals were marble. The stoa is named after the painted wooden panels used to decorate the building all panels are now lost, but were described by Pausanias in the 2nd century AD. They depicted various battles fought by Athens, such as the Amazonomachy by Mycon and the taking of Troy by Polygnotos. These two mythical battles are juxtaposed by the painting of an historical event, the Battle of Marathon, in which Miltiades himself was shown. This painting features most prominently, and as such displays the confidence and identity of the Athenians in the wake of the Persian Wars, particularly when compared to the two great mythical victories also shown. Both Polygnotos and Mycon worked on this piece, as well as Pynanos, a brother of Phidias. That one of the Stoa's paintings portrayed the Battle of Marathon, in which Cimon's father, Miltiades, had won glory, was only appropriate since the building had been donated to the city by Callias, the husband of Cimon's sister, Elpiniki, probably with financial assistance from Cimon himself. The social values of Athenian democracy called for leaders like Cimon and his brother-in-law to provide such gifts for public use to show their goodwill towards the city, and thereby earn increased social eminence as their reward. In addition to the costly liturgies that we have discussed, although Stoas in Athens usually had specific uses, the painted Stoas functions varied. Beyond being a picture gallery and a museum where war trophies were deposited, it was used on occasion as a meeting hall or a law court and was often open to the public. We are told of great throngs of people of all kinds here, such as entertainers, beggars, fishmongers, and philosophers. It is from this stoa that the Stoics, followers of the philosopher Zeno from around 300 BC onwards, took their name. The Stoa Po Achilles stood for over six centuries, possibly gaining additional artwork over the years. It suffered when Athens was sacked in the 3rd century AD by the Hurlians, although only easily looted items were taken at the time. The paintings were removed by a Roman governor in the late 4th century AD, and the Stoa was ultimately demolished to gain building material for a city wall. The largest stoa of them all, though, was on the south side of the Agora, between the Heliai and the Enneakronos, or the Southeastern Fountain Houses. It was built around 425 to 400 BC. Archaeologists theorize that the stoa may have had a second story. The two-aisled stoa opened northwards with a Doric outer colonnade, an inner colonnade of unknown order, and 16 rooms which lined the southern wall. Of the 16 rooms, one narrow room must have served as a vestibule. The large number of coins found here suggests that this was a place for commerce, perhaps banking, while the shape of some of the rooms is suitable for dining couches. Since numerous members of official city magistries were fed at public expense, this may be the place where those concerned with commercial activities and their regulation, such as the inspectors of weights and measures, had their offices and took their meals. During the classical period, the area in the middle of the agora was an open field, but as Athens grew, the so-called Middle Stoa was built around 180 BC. Typical of the Hellenistic age, the Stoa was more elaborate and larger than the earlier buildings of ancient Athens. There is a long set of ruins stretching clear across the Agora. We can make out two long lines of column fragments that supported the roof. It also had malls and business shops. Furthermore, another large Stoa was built during the Hellenistic period, to the left of the Painted Stoa and in the northeast corner of the Agora, would have been the Stoa of Attalus. It was over 115 meters in length, and dominated the east side of the Agora. It was originally built around 150 BC, as a gift from King Attalus II of Pergamum, for the education that he had received in Athens, as a fragmentary inscription on its lower colonnade indicates. He was fascinated by Greek culture and became a patron of Athens. Made of white pentelic marble and limestone, just like the Parthenon, The stoa had two stories with a second series of columns on the interior, and 21 shops at the back of each floor. There were stairways at each end of the stoa. On the ground floor, the exterior colonnade was Doric, and the interior was Ionic, without fluting. On the upper floor, the exterior colonnade was Ionic, and the interior had capitals of a pergamene type. This mix of Ionic and Doric began in the classical period, and became typical of Hellenistic buildings. The stove was in use until it was destroyed by the Hurleyans in the 3rd century AD, and its ruins were incorporated into a fortification wall, which made it easy to be seen in modern times, allowing it to be restored to its current form in the 1950s. Its reconstruction is particularly important to the study of ancient monuments, because it is believed to be a faithful replica of the original building. The ground floor now houses the Museum of the Ancient Agora, while the upper floor houses the American School of Classical Studies at Athens. The earliest of the administrative buildings in the archaic period were located on the west side of the agora, below the colonus agorais, on the site of the old bouletarian, a great chamber for the city council. It was square-shaped and included an oblong antechamber and a main council chamber where the Boule convened. In fact, bouletarian comes from the Greek words Boule, or council, and Tarian, or a place to do something. The Boule organized and debated on legislation to be presented to the ecclesia on the Paninx hill when a new bulletarian was built directly beside it to the west, at the end of the 5th century BC. The older version was converted into a temple to the mother goddess Sibylle, called a matrune, or house of the mother. Supposedly, the Athenians had killed one of her wandering priests when he attempted to introduce her cult to the city. The plague which then visited the city was dealt with by honoring her. However, the account may have been a later invention, as the earliest source is from the 4th century AD. Regardless, the old Bulletarian or the Matroon, continued to serve a public function, as it housed the official archives of the city that contained the names of its citizens, as well as their birth and death dates. The new Bulletarian was built smaller, but was more sophisticated, with a podium at the center of a half-circle, with 12 levels of ascending seats built into the side of the hill in the west end of the agora. To the south of the Boulaterian was a small rotunda-shaped building, ringed with six ionic columns and a cone-shaped roof, called a tholos. It would have been the most easily identifiable structure. Built around 465 BC, it became the center of Athenian democracy, as it was the meeting place for the 50-member executive committee of the boule to conduct the routine and diplomatic business of the city. Periodically, the 500 members of the Boule chose these 50 men from among them to govern them from the Tholos. The law required that at least one-third of the 50 had to be on the property at all times for emergencies, so while they served this role, they lived in ate here in the Tholos. The Tholos also housed the official weights and measures, and contained an altar in the middle that held a flame that was always kept burning. The 2 Bouletarians, together with the Tholos, were the administrative nerve centers of the democracy. East of the Old Bulletarian was the monument of the eponymous heroes. It was a long pedestal enclosed by stone posts connected to one another by three wooden beams that bore the bronze statues of the mythical heroes of each of the ten Athenian tribes as described by Cleisthenes. It was also an important information center for the Athenians. On the sides were hung wooden boards with announcements, agendas for public meetings, legal decrees coming up for vote, lists of citizens conscripted into the army, civic honorary distinctions, forthcoming lawsuits and trials, and so forth. Because of this, in addition to the Stoas, this area became one of the more frequent spots. Further to the south, in the southwestern corner of the Agora, was the strategion, a trapezoidal building that was the meeting room of the 10 strategoi. These men were elected for one year, and there was one from each tribe. Here, they would have discussed and made decisions regarding matters of finance, politics, and foreign policy. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is powered by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by Great Courses Plus. I love learning about all the fascinating stories that history has to offer. That's why I started this podcast, and why I continue to enjoy the Great Courses Plus. I know you're going to love this too. Get unlimited access to learn about anything that interests you, from award-winning experts, dig deeper into history, explore different sciences, pick up a new language, or take better pictures. The options are endless with a great course's plus. For today's episode, I suggest checking out their fantastic course, Cities of the Ancient World. It explores the agricultural and urban revolution that led to the founding of cities like Athens, Alexandria, and Rome, and how they gave rise to modern culture. In particular, you will be able to dive deeper and gain a better understanding of how the people who made up these great civilizations lived, and discover that while so much has changed, there's still so much that hasn't. This is the perfect time to start enjoying The Great Courses Plus. Watch lectures anytime, anywhere, or listen along with The Great Courses Plus app. And right now, my listeners get unlimited access to enjoy The Great Courses Plus free for one month, but you need to sign up with my special URL. Start your free month today, sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Greece. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Greece. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. The Pisistratids were responsible for a number of civic monuments, including a large fountain house and an aqueduct that fed into it. So essential in drought-ridden Greece, the so-called Eniakronos, or Nine Springs, sat in the southeastern corner. Fountains were popular with the people, as it was easier to get water from a spout than to draw it from a well, and it also served as an important social center for the various women and slaves who didn't get many opportunities to do so. The remains of a second large fountain can be seen in the southwestern corner of the Agora, near a major crossroads of the ancient city. The building, which was destroyed by Roman troops under Sulla in 86 BC, is in a poor state of preservation. It consists of a large L-shaped basin that is surrounded by a colonnaded porch with unfluted columns. This basin measured about 6 by 3 meters, or 20 by 10 feet roughly, at either end of a large 18 meter or 60 feet building. The western part of the basin served as a reservoir, from which water could be retrieved by using some sort of a large pot or vessel. The eastern end probably had spouts set into a wall from which jugs could be filled. The monumental water clock was constructed at the end of the 4th century BC in the southwestern corner of the Agora on the street leading up to the Peninx. The device was a simple outflow clock with a small brown's outlet hole at the bottom which allowed the tank to drain slowly. Some flotation device recorded the passing hours as the water level fell. A full tank took some 17 hours to empty and the plug would be pulled at the dawn of each day. It was dismantled in the 2nd century BC and became the forerunner of the water clock and the Tower of the Winds in the Roman Agora. By the end of the 5th century BC, a large square building, identified as the Mint, where Athens struck its bronze coinage, but not its silver, had been built in the southeastern corner of the Agora, while in the northeast corner, law courts were constructed. The law courts were a prominent feature of Athenian democracy. For more information on them, be sure to check out episode 44. Although the stoa serve the function of law courts as well, it's these in the northeast corner that have yielded some of the archaeological evidence for the judicial process, such as a ballot box, some bronze ballots, jurors' tickets, small water clocks for trials, and fragments of allotment machines. These are all housed in the Agora Museum, and in addition to the various ostraca that have been found, these are our best material evidence for Athenian democracy in action. During the 6th century BC, the open space right in the middle of the agora had been used for theatrical events, whether it was dancing, drama, or singing. These theatrical contests, in honor of Dionysus, were watched here by spectators seated on planks, supported by wooden scaffolding called the icria, a temporary structure that could be put up or taken down at will. After the Ikria collapsed sometime in the 5th century BC, injuring many people, these events were moved to the new Theatre of Dionysus on the other side of the Acropolis. The Middle Stoa would be built in this open area in the 2nd century BC, as we previously mentioned. During the Roman period, though, they would utilize this space once again for theatrical performances. Just south of the Middle Stoa, the Roman statesmen in general built what would be called the Odeon of Agrippa as a gift to the people of Athens. It was a two-story tall auditorium that was equipped with a raised stage and a marvel-paved orchestra. It became a popular place, fitting 1,000 spectators. After the roof collapsed around 150 AD, the Odeon of Agrippa was rebuilt, but in a smaller size, only seating 500 now. However, at this point, it was lined in the front by six large statues of giants, of which only three are remaining on site. Two of those appear to be tritons, while the other is a snake. Nearby is a Corinthian capital that once stood atop a colossal column, belonging to the monumental entrance to the Odeon of Agrippa. The Corinthian style, with its elaborate capital showing the leaves of a plant, was used rarely by the Greeks, but became very popular with the Romans. After the Herulian sailed from the Black Sea and devastated Athens in the 3rd century AD, burning most of the agora to the ground, the Athenians quickly threw up a wall to keep future invaders at bay, using anything that they could and without mortar. There was a Slavic invasion in 585 AD too, and the agora never recovered after these two attacks. Residents settled in other parts of the city, and by 700 AD this area became a ghost town outside of the city walls and was exposed to bandits. The Church of the Holy Apostles, with its lantern-like dome, was built in the 10th century AD, while Athens was under the dominion of the Byzantines. Slowly, Athens had recovered from centuries of invasion and neglect. It was built next to the Stoa of Attalus and atop the ruins of the Nymphaeon, which was itself built on top of a sacred spring to the nymphs. This church was commemorated to St. Paul, who had preached in the Agora. It was the first significant church of the Byzantine period in Athens, and became the prototype for later Athenian churches. Made of decorative patterns of bricks, it has a central dome with four radiants that jut out, forming a cross. The windows have horseshoe-shaped arches, and a few wall paintings have survived inside the church. The church is particularly significant for its architecture, but also because it's one of only two monuments in the agora to survive intact since its foundation. The other is the Temple of Hephaestus. To the northwest of the Athenian Agora, on the hill of Colonus Agorreus, high above sits the temple of Hephaestus, or the Hephaestion. It has withstood the ravages of time far better than the Parthenon, and is still in remarkably good condition. In fact, it is one of the best preserved temples in the Greco-Roman world, even standing with a complete roof. We will get to why shortly. It too was a vital part of the massive building program of Pericles. Hephaestus was the craftsman of the gods, and his temple was beside the part of Athens where many potters and metallurgists had their workshops. Archaeological evidence suggests that there was no earlier building on the site, only a small sanctuary that was burned by the Persians. Construction started in 449 BC, but the temple was put together piecemeal for the next three decades. Many scholars believe the reason was because most of the funds and workers were redirected towards the Acropolis. The temple was erected and the friezes and the pediments were done before the Peloponnesian War, but it was only during the Peace of Nicaeus that the roof was completed and the cult images were installed. It would be officially inaugurated in 415 BC. It's a traditional peripteral doric temple, being surrounded on all sides by doric columns, 6 on the east and west sides, and 13 running all along the north and south sides. Made entirely of pentelic and Parian marble, it is half the size of the Parthenon it was entered on the east end, which faces the Agora. The temple's eastern metopes show scenes of Theseus, Athens' legendary hero, battling the Palantides, the 50 sons of Pallas. They were Theseus' cousins, and with whom he quarreled for the throne of Athens, following the death of his father Aegeus. The west shows the Centauromachy, the famous battle between the Lapiths and Centaurs that Theseus took part in. The other two sides are hard to make out. They might be Heracles' labors and the birth of Athens' legendary first king, who was a son of Hephaestus. The blacksmith god tried to woo Athena, but when she rejected his advances, he tried to rape her. In the shuffle, he prematurely ejaculated and spilled a semen on the ground, impregnating Gaia, the mother earth goddess, which resulted in the creation of a snake-like creature called Kikrops, who became Athens' first king. Inside, there is a three-sided alcove, called a pronaeus, and a central hall, called a cella. According to Pausanias, it held two large bronze statues, one each of Athena and Hephaestus. Tradition attributes the work to Alchemenes, a pupil of Phidias. In the 3rd century BC, trees and shrubs, with pomegranates, myrtle, and laurel, were planted around the temple, creating a small garden in large part to the many images of Theseus that adorned the temple. In late antiquity, it was mistakenly believed to have held the remains of Theseus, after Chimon supposedly brought them back to the city from the island of Scyros, and so they called it the Theseon. But modern scholars have refuted this after finding inscriptions inside the temple, firmly associating it with Hephaestus from the very beginning. In the 7th century AD, it was turned into a Christian church dedicated to St. George, at which point the coffering ceiling was added. This is what allowed for its complete state of preservation. Unlike the Parthenon, the Ottomans didn't turn the Temple of Hephaestus into a mosque. They allowed it to continue as a Christian church, though it was only used once a year, that being on the day of the Feast of St. George. In 1834, Otto I, the first king of the modern country of Greece, ordered the building to be used as a museum and as a burial place for non-Orthodox Europeans who gave their lives in the cause of Greek independence against the Ottoman Turks. Archaeologists have found Latin epitaphs composed by Lord Byron for some of those who died. Finally, in 1934, it was reverted to an ancient monument, at which point archaeological research was allowed. These splendid buildings required a large outlay of money, which was drawn mainly from the tribute reserve. The opposition, as we have seen, challenged the use of the allies' money for Athenian temples, but they were overridden. Monetary expenditure, however, was not limited to temples and statues for the gods. A program of social building was also developed. In the days of Cimon's ascendancy, the people still looked naturally to the aristocratic houses for patronage, and Cimon in particular had a reputation for giving liberally. In the fully developed democracy, though, the state provided for all of its citizens the essential amenities of a citizen's life, such as gymnasia and baths. This side of the building program has been overshadowed by the great works on the Acropolis, but it represents an important aspect of Periclean social policy. The extravagance of the social building program was a natural target for the opposition, and one of the main issues which led to the ostracism of Thucydides, not the historian, which we will discuss in more detail in a future episode. Of the various non-religious buildings Pericles commissioned around the Acropolis, the most important was the Odeon, a great musical concert hall at the southeastern foot of the Acropolis erected to the east of the entrance into the theater of Dionysus, not to be confused with the massive Odeon of Herodes Atticus at the southwestern foot of the Acropolis, which was built much later during the Roman times. The Odeon was built in 435 BC for the musical contests that performed part of the Panathenaea, for audiences during theatrical competitions to keep shelter during inclement weather, and for chorus rehearsals. Few remains of it now survive, But Plutarch states that it was adorned with stone pillars and was square-shaped, instead of the circular shape that was typical for an odeon. It was said to be covered with timber that was made from captured Persian ships, culminating in a square pyramid-like roof that resembled a tent. In fact, Pausanias wrote that it was said to be an exact copy of Xerxes' tent. Comedians joke that this tent-like roof was shaped like the pointy helmet of Pericles, the Strategos. In particular, the comedic poet Cratinus, in his lost play called Thrattai, says, quote, "Here comes Pericles, our peak-headed Zeus, with the Odeon set upon his crown." End quote. From the scanty remains, we can surmise that the Odeon also had an orchestra for the chorus and a stage for the musicians, behind which were rooms that possibly stored costumes and other ornaments needed for the various religious processions. It would remain in continuous use until it was burned down in the first century BC, during Sola's siege of the Athenian Acropolis. Further afield in Attica, there were two other important parts of Pericles' building program. To the west, a new hall for the celebration of the mysteries at Eleusis, called the Telesterion, was designed by Actinos, one of the great architects of the Parthenon, to be big enough to hold thousands of people, and Corobus carried it out. It was built with the dark limestone of Eleusis. One side of it was formed by the rock of the hill under which it was built, and the stone steps around the walls would have seated about 3,000. As the place was close to the Megarian frontier, a strong wall with towers was erected around the precincts of the shrine, so that the place had the aspect of a fortress and the mysteries could be conducted unharmed. We discussed the importance of the Eleusinian mysteries and the Telesterion in episode 62. On the other hand, on the southernmost tip of Attica, Pericles commissioned a great temple overlooking the sea at Cape Sunion. The Temple of Poseidon there is one of the most recognizable sites in Greece, as it is perched atop a headland of about 200 feet high that is surrounded on three sides by the sea and overlooking a very dangerous cape. In ancient times, this cape was thought to portray the fury and power of the sea, and thus the fury and power of Poseidon. On the longest day of the year, the sun sets exactly in the middle of the caldera of the island of Patroclus, an extinct volcano that lies offshore in the Saronic Gulf, suggesting an astrological significance for the location of the temple. The first temple was built there at some point in the 7th century BC. Every four years, there was a festival celebrated to Poseidon called the Poseidonia, Many came to the sanctuary and sacrificed animals or left votive offerings, as a way to propitiate the god for safe sea travels. There were dances and competitions also. It may have been sacked by the Persians, as they controlled the whole Attic Peninsula, though there is no direct evidence of this in the sources. However, Herodotus does say that after their victory at Salamis, the Athenians placed an entire captured enemy trireme at Sunion as a trophy dedicated to Poseidon, though he doesn't mention whether the Persians sacked the temple or not. Regardless, it was destroyed at some point in the early 5th century BC, so that's the prevailing thought among scholars. After his building program on the Athenian Acropolis and in the Agora had already kicked off, Pericles commissioned the same architect who designed the Hephaestion, believed to be Alchemenes, to design a new temple of Poseidon on top of the foundations of the previous one. Construction lasted from 444 to 440 BC. It was not built with pentelic marble though, but from locally quarried white marble. It was a traditional Doric temple, with six columns on each portico, and 13 along each side. Only 15 of the 34 columns still stand today though, but when intact, unsurprisingly, it would have closely resembled the Hephaestion. A column from the temple also can be seen in the British Museum. The cult image of Poseidon that adorned the inside of the temple was a colossal 20-foot bronze statue. Probably covered in gold leaf, it may have resembled a contemporary representation of the god, which was appropriately found in a shipwreck off the coast of Artemisium and now housed in the Athens National Archaeological Museum. In most statues of Poseidon, he was usually portrayed carrying a trident, the weapon he supposedly used to stir up storms at sea. During the Peloponnesian War, Cape Sunion held a very strategic importance for the Athenians, so much so that in 413 BC, they fortified the site with watchtowers and a wall that was 10 feet thick and a half mile long. The cape controlled the sea routes to the islands and especially to Euboea, from where came the cargoes of grain needed to feed the population of Athens. In fact, Sunion was the first port touched when grain was shipped, so it was important to prevent it from falling into Spartan hands. This was made even more imperative after the Spartans captured Decalia and blocked the overland grain route into Euboea. Wind and waves are strong around the cape though, which has caused a lot of shipwrecks. As a result, many artifacts have been discovered here. Pirates also hung around the coves, and the Macedonians came here to base their raids into southern Greece during the succession wars following Alexander's death. Around 100 BC, there was a slave revolt in the nearby mines of Larium, in which a thousand slaves took advantage of the fortified hilltop and used it as a refuge until they were eventually overrun, while at the same time, slave revolts were happening in Sicily. The temple was destroyed in 399 AD by the Roman emperor Arcadius. Today, Cape Sunion is a popular day excursion for tourists from Athens, not only for its wonderful ruins, but for its majestic sunset over the Aegean Sea. Even the romantically challenged visitors will succumb to the majesty of the immense blue sea, will let their eyes roam over the picturesque coastline and the small islets as they gaze out to the Peloponnese and the Cyclades. And will be enchanted by the sunset and abandon themselves to dreams. In fact, in the early nineteenth century, the English poet Lord Byron mentions Sunion in his poem called Isles of Greece. He writes, Place me on Sunion's marbled steep, where nothing, save the waves and I, may hear our mutual murmurs sweep. Byron also inscribed his name on one of the columns on the temple of Poseidon. He was a philhellene or a lover of greek antiquities and he even joined the greek war of independence fighting the ottoman turks for which many greeks then and now still revere him as a sort of national hero byron also was a bitter opponent of elgin's removal of the parthenon marbles from greece and reacted with fury when he was given a tour of the parthenon after the fact and he saw the spaces left by the missing friezes and metopes he denounced elgin's actions in one of his poems We talked about Lord Elgin last episode, but we will discuss all of this in much greater detail in a way later episode. I do intend to speak about Philhellenism and Greek antiquarianism at some point, maybe in a special supplemental episode once the podcast is finished. I find the revival of Western Europe's love for ancient Greece following the Renaissance from the 16th to the 19th centuries all very fascinating. Although other places and other times produced many fine buildings, the temples built during the second half of the 5th century BC in Attica arguably exemplified the best of all Greek architecture. They reached an amazing degree of beauty in their simple elegance, which was achieved by a fine understanding of proportion and design, and by great technical skill. No other poleis had ever gone beyond the traditional function of temples by adorning them with representations of its citizens. Presumably, this claim reflected the Athenian interpretation of their recent successes in helping to turn back the Persians and thus highlighting their role as the defenders of Greek civilized life, in achieving leadership of a powerful naval alliance, and in controlling, from their silver mines and the Allies' tribute, an amount of revenue that made the polis of Athens richer than all of its neighbors in mainland Greece. The Periclean building program both paid honor to the gods with whom the polis was identified and expressed the Athenian view that the gods looked favorably on their empire, and their success naturally only proved to them in their minds that the gods were on their side. Athens also received substantial public revenues from harbor fees, sales taxes, and the tribute of the Allies. Religious buildings paid for by public funds from these sources constitute the most conspicuous architecture in the city of the classical period. The scale of their public civic buildings, though, was usually no greater than the size required to fulfill their function, such as the complex of buildings on the Agora's western edge, in which the Boulé of 500 held its meetings and the public archives were kept. Since the Ecclesia convened in the open air on the Panique's hill above the Agora, it required no building at all except for a speaker's platform. The growth of the urban center also was not at the expense of rural areas, as public buildings were also located away from the city. Gymnasiums and stadiums that required plenty of level space were often found in the suburbs, which were cooler and shadier and closer to plentiful supplies of water than could be found in central Athens. Colt centers and rural agoras, as well as fortresses and other structures for defenses, were scattered throughout Attica. It was an easy walk, however, from city to country. In the 5th century BC, probably three-quarters of the citizens owned some rural property. Farming could be a part-time occupation that produced enough food to provide sustenance for a family. Many people still lived in villages, were loyal to their rural deems, and depended upon their family farms. Except for the spaces set aside for public activities, Athens was neither a beautiful city nor a comfortable one, and many property citizens were happy to leave the business of work to the urban poor, to the medics, who were not permitted to own land in Attica and to the slaves. And that will be the subject of our next several episodes, particularly how the Greeks traveled either by land or by sea, and the artisan and merchant economy of the urban poor, non-citizen medics, and slaves. But first, we must talk about the two deities that had a significant hand in these activities, the god of artisans and the god of commerce and travelers. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, episode 67, Hephaestus and Hermes you